welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about women's rights and the movements for gender equality in Iran and across the Middle East. We discuss how diplomacy and tensions affect women's situations. We talk about reform movements in Iran and in other countries across the region. And we also discuss online harassment and targeting of women journalists covering Iran. My guest today is Azadeh Mouaveni, a writer and academic who has been covering Iran and the greater Middle East for two decades. She directs the Gender and Conflict Project at the International Crisis Group and is the author of a few great books on Iran and the region, including Lipstick Jihad, Honeymoon in Tehran, and Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. Azadeh, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me. Let's first talk about this very recent report published by Article 19, an organization in the UK in collaboration with the Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, um, who looked into the toxic and often violent space that women journalists who report on Iran, people like myself, yourself, and many of our colleagues um, inhibit. The report is um, titled... Uh, online harassment against women journalists in the Iranian diaspora, and it looks at various um, forms of threats and harassment that we deal with and how covering Iran, even from outside the country, can be a dangerous beat for any journalist and specifically for women journalists in exile. So talk about your thoughts on this report. And I also know you had this great thread on Twitter uh, where you highlighted some important points that weren't so prominent in this report. So I want to hear your thoughts uh, on this general topic and also what you think was missing or not highlighted as much. Absolutely. Um, well, I thought the report was fantastic in in terms of simply bringing this very concerning and and very pernicious um, kind of atmosphere that's developed um, for for women, as you said, who who report on, who analyze, and who work on Iran in the diaspora, largely uh, of Iranian origin. Um, I don't think that policy circles, journalistic circles, um, the sort of broader um, media and human rights kind of communities uh, are are as aware of, of this phenomenon as they should be. Perhaps they, they see flashes um, or mentions of it here and there, um, but the depth of it, the perniciousness of it, the, the organized nature of it as, as a very kind of chilling and intimidating uh, space that's emerged for, for women analysts and, and reporters uh, and, and academics too. Um, so I think that was has been missing. Um, so I think it's absolutely critical that this kind of very, very gendered abuse and harassment in this specific sphere uh, has been highlighted in this way um, and brought to kind of the, the forefront of, of people's attention, hopefully. Um, it's certainly not something that we, we faced. Um, I've been covering Iran for 20 years and it's not something that we faced at all in this way, um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, even arguably six or seven years ago. Um, so as a, as a kind of um, uh, sort of portrayal of, of a very dark, very organized um, and, and very intimidating uh, sort of 
set of dynamics that shrink civic space, that shrink journalistic space for women specifically, uh, I think it's critical. Um, what I think was was a little bit absent uh, in a disappointing way was a, a deeper and more critical analysis of how this operates and why. Um, those of us who are the targets um, of this kind of harassment and this gendered, often very misogynistic, um, organized abuse um, have, have had a chance to, to watch it operationally. And it's not... Uh, it's not random. It's not. Uh, it's not accidental. It's highly organized, and we see those of us who've been the targets of have seen how it interacts with a much more mainstream uh, kind of legacy, if we can use that word, think tank media environment. So that's actually what's really. I think operationally, what renders this kind of abuse and harassment powerful, it's amplified by and interacts with um, mainstream spheres that are sometimes funded by the US government, um, connected to media outlets that have massive audiences, um, Iran International, which reporting has shown seems to have uh, links or be funded by um, investors in the Gulf or Saudi Arabia, um, Voice of America and different grantees who receive support from the US government, uh, different sort of think tank and lobbyist circles in Washington, DC, who, who have plausible deniability because of course, you know, it's very murky to chase the origins of this kind of abuse and harassment. But when it's amplified in a very mainstream sphere, that way, uh, it, it takes on a very different uh, and, and much more um, destructive force, uh, I would say. And that political analysis is, is, is largely, I would say, absent from this report. And if we really want to understand how this happens, why it happens politically, who funds it and who amplifies it, we need to be acknowledging the links between um, the, the kind of powerful sources of funding and the operational um, centers that amplify this abuse. Um, I agree with you, Azadeh, and again, full disclosure, as a subjects or victims of these attacks, um, we have a very different outlook or view of how this ecosystem works. And there have been recommendations in this report and also in the past to social media companies, which uh, basically the online sphere or social media, uh, social networks seem to be the main ecosystem where these attacks and misinformation and smear campaigns thrive and disseminate to people. There have been recommendations to governments in this report to support female journalists and also recommendations to media organizations to take these threats more seriously and support um, female journalists. But I also, in your excellent Twitter thread, and I encourage everyone to go and read it uh, fully, you mentioned that e any real effort to dismantle this hateful infrastructure would require cutting the funds that makes gendered online abuse of independent women journalists and analysts someone's paycheck. This does not have to do with social media companies. This is not part of um, media environments. This is that ecosystem and the funding and the financing and the very coordinated nature of these attacks that you're talking about. Elaborate on that and what you think is a path forward and the solution would be. That's a, that's a great question. And, and it brings us to, uh, I think, a very practical um, set of considerations. Um, you know, there are some actors whose behavior we can't control or have any effect on. We can't control, uh, you know, 
MEK, Mojahedina Khalq, affiliated troll farms in Albania. We can't control bot accounts um, that seem to operate uh, in, in the region. Uh, but we can control or we can ask for there to be some accountability around grantees of the U.S. government, for example, very clearly. Um, I don't think that uh, those who take U.S. government money should be in any way um, uh, associated with or even amplifying this kind of abuse. Um, that's a kind of uh, that's a kind of malpractice. I would I would argue, um, and and it's quite hard to to. You know, the, the U.S. government's um, gender equality uh, and, and different kind of uh, kind of values that it advances uh, in these spheres really can't be siloed from its Iran policy. It can't be siloed from its uh, its its media sort of broadcast related organs like VOA uh, and, and other kinds of grantees who, who operate in the sphere. Um, so that's one thing. Another is, you know, and, and this is more sort of, you know, the, the behavior of of kind of individuals, um, those who go on platforms that engage in this kind of abuse. I mean, I would I would make the case that there are certain platforms like Iran International, um, I feel very comfortable saying that, um, that, that I, I would not ever kind of engage with or go on um, if they're going to be associated with, with this kind of toxicity. Um, and that's something that individual analysts, academics, you know, all sorts of, of, of colleagues can, can choose. And in the same way that they might not choose to appear on platforms that spread disinformation, the same way that they might not go on RT, uh, Russia Today, or, or other, other outlets. So, I mean, I think there are, there are spheres that are kind of within control and those that are beyond and the ones that are um, kind of within some sort of arena that we can influence or decount, demand accountability in, we should. And uh, speaking of U.S. grantees, there was this very specific example of the Iran disinformation project. Um, I did some reporting on that. There have been a number of other outlets who reported on how State Department funding or grants were used to supposedly counter Iranian government disinformation, but it was used in a way to basically troll critics of U.S. policy, people like myself and yourself and many others who are proponents of diplomacy and critical of sanctions and military um, tensions. We've had discussions about that on this very podcast, so I encourage our audience to go back and read about the Iran Disinformation Project and also listen to those episodes that we go into more detail about that one specific project. But as you said, there are more projects and also more individual grantees and contractors who engage in this kind of behavior. Um, now, I want to um, sort of shift gears and talk about U.S.-Iran relations. You mentioned the State Department's Iran programming, but this, the more general picture of this um, four decades of animosity really since the 1979 revolution and how that's impacted Iran's politics, economy, to some extent, even culture in the situation of women and women's rights. And the specifically, I want to ask you about that brief moment of diplomacy. This is under the Obama years when the nuclear negotiations were happening. They were successful. The JCPOA was made. And there was a brief moment that um, seemed like this decades of animosity is going to take a different direction. There was a lot of hope for change in Iran's foreign policy, and internal domestic uh, dynamics, economy. What was your assessment of those years and then just generally diplomacy between Tehran and Washington 
Um, and, and also the lack of it, because we're not go back to, we have been back to a few years when um, maximum pressure has re uh, replaced diplomacy. And I'm going to ask about that later. But I want to get your views on how diplomacy or reduced tensions between Iran and the U.S. impacted the society. You know, it, it was a remarkable stretch of time, wasn't it, um, that feels really an anomaly now when we look at it in hindsight, the kind of interruption of, of as you say, these, these years of, um, of, of mutual hostility. Um, it, it, was, it was quite incredible for a time um, because I think it, it kind of opened the possibility that there would be a, a rationalization of of how each country approached the other. Um, you know, I think you, like myself and many others who work on this space, um, are, are constantly kind of having to reckon with the fact that, that the nature of Iran-U.S. relations is highly irrational when you look at the kind of strategic interests of both countries uh, and how they, they very often actually align and and the ease with which they could slide into a kind of accommodation uh, with one another. Um, so so to, to have sort of entered into what seemed like a much more simply rational phase, um, kind of putting this, this long history. But, you know, of course, there's also very real political um, uh, kind of realities, the nature of the Republican Party's hostility to Iran um, and, and the very kind of vested uh, relationship between the Republican Party and Israel. And, and I'm sort of going on a bit now about, about the policy uh, aspects of it. Um, I mean, I, I, I would argue inside Iran, um, you know, it, it was cause for enormous hope. Um, and, and specifically, you know, hope that there would be um, a, a kind of shift to this isolation that Iran experienced internally uh, as, as a result of, of the fraught nature of these relations, um, you know, in, in all sorts of spheres. I mean, Iran has really, I think Iranian society, whether we're talking about academia or the arts or science or, or health infrastructure, I think it's, it's kind of, um, it's managed to, to flourish in, in a very limited way, if, if you can f indeed flourish in a limited way. Um, so such that I think that period, perhaps in the private sector and, and the economic sector was the most kind of effervescent for a time. Um, you know, the idea or the possibility that that private investors um, and, and that sort of Iran's great market would finally open up to the world. Um, I think that was like that sort of incredibly raised set of expectations for for the for the business community and and startups in Iran the idea that you know that suddenly there would be a whole different kind of relationship with with the regional economy with the world economy um I mean if I were to sort of pinpoint one thing that I think that period led to in terms of expectations and shifts uh it, it would be that um I think in in other ways you know Iran has largely um, kind of managed to to just plod along. Um, especially, you know, I, I work on gender and, and the way that political instability or good versus troubled political relations and economic relations impacts gender equality. Um, you know, I think there was uh, a real excitement uh, and hope that the, the possibility of greater 
you know, foreign direct investment in Iran would mean a shift for Iranian women in the private sector. Their kind of ability to push through this glass ceiling of, of middle management and um, their kind of ability to get into leadership positions, a changing business culture for women and gender relations inside the country. And I think that was uh, starting to seem like it would would sort of come to fruition and was sort of very, very disappointingly dashed when Trump pulled out of the JCPOA. Um, so, you know, I think that leads us to, to, to today, you know, will, you know, perhaps the government is partly being very cautious about prospects because it doesn't want to kind of set these expectations, especially in the business and economic sector up for that kind of, um, that kind of failure. Um, but that, that's just sort of one area where I think there was uh, a real shift and a hope that things would change significantly um, and, and did not, sadly. Mm-hmm. And we know the JCPOA had, it really was a brief moment. It didn't have much time to sort of lead to that um, economic opening that everyone expected in 2016, essentially a few months after the JCPOA was implemented. Um, election campaigns already started in the United States and then President Trump came into power and he basically had a complete shift of views and rhetoric and eventually policy towards Iran, pulling out of the JCPOA, military tensions and this campaign of maximum pressure. I want to ask you about the impact of that on Iranian society and specifically on women. You had this excellent piece in the New York Times Um, arguing that the middle-class women of Iran are disappearing. And you go into with Susanne Tahmas, be a human rights um, activist and women's rights activist. You explain how uh, the decimation of Iran's economy is unfolding in the lives of the very constituency that has been working to reform um, and liberalize and whose name, Mr. Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, and other leading American officials speak in, the middle-class Iranian women. Talk about your research on that and how those years of maximum pressure basically actually hurt the very people that the Trump administration claimed to be supporting. Yeah, thank you for that question. It was something that um, Susan, who is um, an old friend uh, and colleague, uh, and I, we you know, had been talking about between ourselves um, for for some time. I mean, we were we were actually most alarmed by how uh, maximum pressure and the the kind of strangulation of Iran's economy, the loss of, of value of the currency uh, and and rising inflation. I mean, it was deeply hurting very poor working class women too. Um, but it was in in the middle class sphere where we saw the erosion of women's um, labor force participation, we saw the erosion of women's leadership roles in key sectors. Um, It was in the middle class where we saw the most pronounced losses or or the erosion of gains in in important areas where women had made uh, slow but steady inroads um, over the years. and we wanted to we wanted to highlight that. I mean, I have um, you know I had worked on Iraq in the the sanctions years um, uh, under Saddam Hussein and, and the oil for food uh, regime of of that time, and it was a very serious. It was very similar, actually. Um, kind of uh, context. Um, so so I sort of brought that history also to the the kind of. Um, examination that that we were able to do from afar. Um, 
But, you know, we wanted to illustrate it through stories and sort of show how this worked in, in particular um, sectors and milieus and, and those that, you know, had been particularly associated with, with women's gains. Um, cinema, for example. You know, we spoke to, you know, a number of, of women involved uh, in cinema and television production who were seeing... Um, their ability to make independent films, to get funding for independent films about women. Um, and, and they're sort of changing position in, in society and in families and in marriages. Um, and, you know, that was a really important kind of medium for, I think, Iranian women to be in dialogue with their country about how their roles were changing uh, and and the clashes that would come with with greater assertiveness and, and women's roles as breadwinners. Um, so all to say um, that women were finding it harder to get their films made. They were hard finding it harder to get money. Sanctions made it harder for Western kind of foundations and cultural institutions that supported them to get money into the country. There was a burgeoning... Uh, sort of sector in Iran um, around kind of homeland style uh, political television programming that was kind of persuading Iranians or showing them how um, the country was facing multiple security threats and kind of amplifying the need for uh, a strong security state response to that. You know, that was was drawing in a lot of actors and, and bringing in, um, uh, you know, offering other kinds of jobs. So the whole sort of the backdrop, not only sanctions uh, and, and the sort of economic blockade Iran was experiencing and the way that was diminishing the economy, but the way that also sectors where, um, where women had, had managed to had find, find inroads, um, the context was changing in multiple and layered ways that were pushing women out. And then, and then, you know, the realities of life. I mean, being able to afford rent in Tehran as, as a single mother, um, you know, for many kind of middle-class women, middle-class women who are living kind of middle-class lives, but hanging on just barely, you know, suddenly that became much more challenging. So we were, you know, wanted to show how women were kind of, there was a sort of reverse migration out of cities so that, uh, you know, be as a result of rents and inflation um, and the way that that affected women's um, civil society participation, you know, activists who had, you know, were finding themselves having to live in, in more, more remote places out of their networks and simply just not having the time to involve themselves anymore in, in whatever kind of civic or sort of activist roles they were in before, because they were having to work two jobs or work 30% more to sort of produce the same income for their families. So um, we, we just wanted to, I think, kind of cast a really wide net to show all the ways that this was um, impacting women um, in, in all these different kind of parts of, of, of society that they had managed really painstakingly over the years to, to, to push themselves to the forefront of. And, and then we're finding that they were now slipping back. Um, so going back to basically the Trump administration's policies and the rhetoric on Iran, specifically Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, so their focus on the human rights abuses and the women's movement, um, and then looking at these actual real impacts or negative impacts on the society, how much do you think that administration actually cared about women's rights and the women's movement? I know you had another excellent piece in which you basically explained how the Trump administration was exploiting Iran's feminist movement. Talk about 
how much you think that vocalness of that administration or the claims to caring for these various rights, specifically the women's movement, um, you think was real and what the Trump administration in reality did uh, or what kind of impact they had on on this movement in Iran? Mm, yeah, that's um, it's a it's a good and it's a tricky question. Um, you know, and I think it's one that uh, the Biden administration, in its own way, has to reckon with. Uh, I think when human rights, uh, women's rights, women's um, legal status is is invoked very selectively by the United States, um, it it really serves to. Uh, just call into question the genuineness uh, of, of those concerns. Um, now, it, the United States seems to get on very well and have very little uh, concern about or problem with allies or partners in the region, uh, places where women enjoy arguably much less status than they do in Iran. Uh, and, and those movements and, and, those, um, and those diminishments or, or kind of... Uh, very poor human rights contexts are rarely mentioned. Uh, whereas Iran, um, which the Trump administration, yeah, liked to invoke really regularly as a place where women were like at the forefront uh, of, of the battle against, um, you know, regime and society. You know, I think just, just in the same way that the Trump administration sought to exacerbate all sorts of kind of long-standing cracks or tensions in Iranian society, but to sort of portray them as, as major, um, like, chasms, that society was cracking uh, along ethnic lines, along religious sectarian lines, and along, uh, along gender lines. Um, and this language that, that Pompeo used about, you know, the mullahs, um, you know, quaking because women are, are standing them down, you know, he was essentially sort of conflating women, the the women's rights movement that had, you know, long preceded, you know, his administration in Iran as, as a regime change movement. Uh, and that had really grave consequences for women activists in Iran. It, it securitized their work, um, not to suggest at all that their work wasn't already, you know, highly sensitive, that, that the government didn't have its own pre-existing um, kind of concerns and repressive tendencies towards women's activism, because of course, you know, anyone who's followed the last 20 years knows that it does. Uh, but at this very febrile moment where you had, um, you know, clearly lots of, from from cyber attacks uh, on Iranian infrastructure, where there was a clear campaign to destabilize Iran from within. Uh, and, and, you know, Secretary Pompeo was putting his finger on the women's movement as yet another quarter that was going to bring down the Islamic Republic, I think did an enormous dis disservice. You know, suddenly women who might have been concerned about harassment on public transportation or or very kind of largely benign um, kind of civic or sort of uh, the, you know, questions like the divorce and, 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 and custody rights, like all, all this whole sort of spectrum of activism, um, you know, however tentative it was, uh, was suddenly put under, you know, the, the glow of, of potential kind of regime change fomentation. Um, and, and I think that had terrible repercussions. It was, it was, a, it was, um, and, and as, you know, like Afghanistan is a, is a whole kind of another conversation, um, but, uh, you know, when, you know, either the, either the rights of women and girls and their livelihood and their safety matter, 
or, or they don't. And if they, if they only matter at certain political moments and if they only matter in certain places, um, then, then I would say arguably over the long term, kind of any, any engagement or invocation of these issues is, is actually really destructive to the long-term trajectory of, of women's rights. And in that piece, I want to also mention this, this there are some great anecdotes in your piece where you first note that uh, Secretary Pompeo was the most outspoken Secretary of State in U.S. history on the subject of Iranian women's struggle for, for equality. And in, um, in some other place, you also mentioned that since the State Department took up the cause of Iranian women on Twitter, the majority of engagement and replies, ironically, had come from men and anonymous accounts supporting regime change, often paired with the hashtag Iran regime change, and that this worried women's rights circles in Tehran um, about these alignments and how it could encourage hardliners in Iran to basically crack down on organizers and protesters and eventually basically hurting the cause. So I want to now go back a few years, well, more than a few years, about two decades, um, and talk about the reform movement in Iran, more inside the country. There was this moment, it wasn't brief, but there was this period of reformed, you worked and lived in Iran, you observed for some uh, years that era of reform. Um, I remember actually first meeting you in Tehran at, at one of these reform, I can't remember what event it was, but um, I was a young student, you were a young journalist covering uh, that era in Tehran. And uh, there was this sort of years that we hoped would bring fundamental change in Iran's politics and as an extension of that culture, women's situation um, in various different um, sort of uh, relations between the society and the state. And you were writing about that with a lot of hope and um, as you explained in some of your pieces, seeing the light as Iran was heading down on a path toward internal reform. And then I saw a few years ago, uh, you wrote another piece mentioning that you're now more cynical about that process and that uh, while you were determined to only see the light in Iran back then, now you're perhaps um, seeing more of the shadows. Talk about that era of reform and what you observed and more specifically how the situation of women and women's rights and their struggle for for more equality um, unfolded in Iran. Um, gosh, <laughs> you're, you're reminding us of, um, of the really early days and in some ways the really golden days. Um, it was a really hopeful time. Um, uh, you know, it was a time when you had a really vibrant women's rights movement in Iran um, that was really active at the grassroots, something that I think we had nowhere else in the region. You know, these you know, signature campaigns and this, this real awareness that, you know, that, that it was really from the bottom up that the, the kind of change um, and the, the kind of momentum um, and, and legitimacy that, you know, in the quarters from which legitimacy was needed. Um, it was, was an extraordinary movement at the time. Um, but, you know, also alongside uh, a reform movement that had its own ambitions for the way that the country was run and the way that it was governed and the structure um, 
through which through which the Islamic Republic sort of understood its its conflicting halves. Um, something I remember really, though, in retrospect, um, it's interesting. It's something that um, I've seen in in parts of the Arab world too, over and over again. You know, I remember at the time there was still a, a real siloing of the women's rights movement and the reform movement because reformists, the traditional reformists, uh, were not very bothered. I would argue, about gender equality or kind of making uh, the women's question front and center of their cause. You know, they would say, uh, like many movements, progressive movements in the region um, and conservative movements in the region have said, you know, uh, we need to, you know, we need to get to our key aims first, then we'll get to the gender stuff later. Um, and, and I think, you know, for whatever reason, the reform movement hit hit so many obstacles, um, not only internally greater repression, but, you know, it, it kind of uh, unfolded eventually in, in a regional context that brought a lot of instability all around Iran's borders um, and, and created a kind of living reality of insecurity all around that made it very easy, I think, for, for the government to say, look, you know, we're like we have... We have we have ISIS on this border. We have you know you know the American occupation on that border. You know we have other we have other important things to to protect ourselves from. Um, but that kind of uh, that lapse of you know we'll we'll achieve these freedoms first, or we'll set these priorities, and then we'll bring women along later. I think is is an Achilles heel of of lots of movements in the region for for reform and change that have. Um, have not succeeded um, for, for various reasons. But, you know, why did it, you know, of course we had the green movement um, and, and that was a profound and, and important moment in um, Iran's kind of post-revolutionary um, kind of uh, experience of an enormous kind of outpouring of, of public condemnation or, or indignation could mean and do. Um, and then that was followed, of course, by by the Arab uprisings and the proxy wars and the civil wars that that arose out of that, which Iran was deeply implicated in, of course. So I guess all to say that you know I think I think our internal story um, is impossible to separate from our neighbor regional story. You know I think as long as Iran is is isolated in the region, as long as it's um, you know, it's isolated in the world or or unable to have even a basic detente with these these other heavyweights in the region that have the backing of Israel uh, and the U.S. Um, you know, as long as that's a sort of security imbalance in the region, I think our domestic story um, and the domestic kind of evolution that needs to come um, is, is, is on hold. I mean, that's my sort of the way that I look back at it after all this time. Mm -hmm. And do you have hope that reform would sort of regain momentum and eventually make ways in Iran and bring those fundamental changes that essentially us as a younger generation were really hoping for but didn't see a lot of it happening or in a sustainable and a long-term way? Do you have uh, that kind of hope in the, for the near or um, long-term future? Uh, I really do. Um, I think Iran has um, Iran has its top level challenges. Um, you know, it will have its its kind of 
its its major challenges regionally vis-a-vis the United States and Israel. It will have its its sort of internal Islamic Republic kind of governance challenges. But I think Iranian society uh, has managed to, despite all odds, um, evolve, grow. Um, you know, I think you know simply seeing the way that. That, that women have managed to push their way in, into into so much of public life. Their their participation in in so many fields is extraordinary. And of course, there's so many obstacles still. But I think societally, in terms of the level of education and skills, comparatively with, with the rest of the region, I think societally we are still in a strong place. So I think once the the, the sort of grand picture security bargains are struck, you know, if, if there can be some sort of detente or accommodation um, on on the kind of grand stage, I think Iranian society uh, is, is ready to um, come into its own. And I don't think a lot of countries in the region can say that. Mm-hmm. And you also have worked on women and gender issues in the region. You mentioned the Green Movement and then the Arab Spring and these transformations, or at least this uh, hope and these movements that were yearning for more freedom and democracy in various countries in the region. Where are we standing now as far as the different states and societies that were involved in the Arab world in um, more of a shift towards authoritarianism in some of the countries in the region. How do you see um, the women's equality movement and the gender issue, the current status of it across different countries in the region today? That's a great question. Um, I would say that the, the kind of shrinking of civic space that we see in much of the region. I mean, countries like Yemen and Syria are, are, those societies are just shattered, um, of course. And so those, those kind of movements and and those kind of aspirations, hopes, of course, are, um, are kind of suspended as, as those countries sort of just try and and struggle and survive. Um, but in other countries, you know, Egypt, Tunisia, um, you know, parts of the Gulf, uh, I think societies remain so deeply polarized along these lines, the kind of big contestation between the Muslim Brotherhood, political Islamism, that kind of unresolved idea or, or kind of possibility of those opposition movements as an alternative to these very corrupt authoritarian orders in the region. Um, none of that sort of was able to run its course in a way. So, you know, political Islamism, I think, is is like somewhat discredited. Um, there's not really a, a different kind of opposition that's emerged um, uh, as an alternative to it. Um, but I would say that, you know, the the deep polarization in these societies is not has not at all lent itself um, uh, because the sort of shrinking of civic space, uh, very often in, in the name of terrorism or security measures, um, you know, essentially the, the kind of big picture confrontation in the region between the kind of Saudi Emirati anti-Muslim Brotherhood order, the way that it plays out in the politics of, of, of multiple countries um, has led to a real deadlocking of politics. So I don't think that um, that women's movements uh, in, in other countries um, have, have fared much better. You know, they're very much uh, in the shadow of, of closed politics, um, politics that, that make very little space um, for, for any kind of dissent or opposition, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, just anti-corruption or, or in pursuit of, of, of different kind of gender norms and equities. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there's so much to talk about all of this. And I also want to encourage again, our audience to read your work, follow your work and read your books on many of these topics, um, honeymoon and Tehran and lipstick jihad, specifically your observations on Iran and also guest house for young widows, which is your experience among the women of ISS. And on that note, Azra, I want to thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Negar. Thank you. That was Azadeh Mouaveni, a writer and academic and director of the Gender and Conflict Project at the International Crisis Group, joining me from the UK. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support us by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran podcast and clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.